David Suisa and welcome to my podcast. Today we're delighted to have my friend Gil Troy, distinguished scholar of North American history at McGill University, columnist for the Jerusalem Post, the Daily Beast, author of 12 books, including Moynihan's Moment, America's Fight Against Zionism is Racism, and Why I'm a Zionist. Gil is also author of his new book, which was on the cover of the Jewish Journal a couple of weeks ago, The Zionist Ideas, Visions for the Jewish Homeland, Then, Now, and Tomorrow, with a foreword by Natan Sharansky. And that's going to be subject of our conversation today. Uh, welcome, Gil. Thank you, David. And before we get into your book, uh, everybody in the Jewish world today is talking about Natalie Portman. So I have to ask you for if you have any thoughts you want to share on the Natalie Portman controversy, which, as everyone knows, she uh, decided to not go to the ceremony after being awarded the $1 million Genesis Prize. What's your take on that, Gil? Patriotism 101 says, even if I disagree with the prime minister or the president of a particular country, I still connect to the country if I want to be a part of the conversation. And Natalie Portman actually had an amazing opportunity. She was given this amazing prize. She said yes. She did her due diligence, presumably. They told her exactly what she would be doing. And she should have, if she wanted to, open up a conversation about issues that are important to her, use the prize. But by rejecting the prize, she actually joined the forces of BDS, whether she likes to say it or not. And there's an article in the forward this week by someone who's from the BDS movement said, welcome, you've joined us. You've repudiated the state of Israel. And, you know, right now we have what I'm calling the Trumpertunity. The Trumpertunity is that 80% of the Jewish world in America hates Donald Trump. But I haven't seen many Americans give up on America. And those American Jews understand that they can criticize the president but love the country. Why does it not transfer to Israel? Why can't we say, I might disagree with this prime minister, but I still love the country? And Natalie Portman, unfortunately, joined the wrong side on this very important conversation for America, for Israel, for Western democracy. You know, what I found surprising is I spoke to some people pretty high up, and apparently she absolutely knew that the prime minister was involved uh, with the prize, with the ceremony, when she accepted on November 7th. So what's really surprised me is why did she say yes in the first place? Because nothing new happened between November 7th and this week. It was the same Israel. It was the same Bibi. It was the same policies that some people agree with, some people disagree with, and it was the same atmosphere. But obviously it seems that somebody got to her or something happened. And, you know, look, this is, let's also step back. I know we're based here in Los Angeles. I know we all worship Hollywood. Maybe this should also teach us not to worship so much the cult of celebrity. Just because you're a great actress, just because you're a movie star, just because you're famous, it doesn't necessarily mean you're wise or you understand the situation, you understand the issues. And I think she showed a stunning superficiality. She showed an inability to, what F. Scott Fitzgerald said is the true mark of a great thinker, to hold two conflicting thoughts in your head. I disagree with the president, or I disagree with the prime minister, I disagree with some policies, but I still love the country. That's sophistication, and she showed a lack of sophistication. And it really hurts me because I'm a Harvard grad and we're supposed to be proud of her, but, you know. Well, it's a perfect segue, uh, this idea of sophistication to our subject of our podcast, which is Zionism. And the one thing that struck me the most in your, in your book, which is a collection of, of essays, over 170 essays, 
was this idea that you divide the thinkers into six Zionist schools of thought. And Zionism is, is a singular word. And when most people think of Zionism, they think of one idea. But what you're bringing here into the conversation is this idea that, you, that Zionism is a lot more than one idea. And I'll just go through each one, political, revisionist, labor, religious, cultural, and diaspora Zionism. What I'd love to do in this conversation is sort of go through each one. And maybe you can talk about how it's still relevant today and how it's operating in Israel. So why don't we start with political? Well, first, let me step back for a second and say the book is a follow-up to a classic, The Zionist Idea which came out in 1959. And at the time, there really was one Zionist idea. We are a people. We have a tie to a particular homeland. And on that homeland, we're going to establish a state like at the time 92 other countries have and now 192 other countries have. And when I was asked to update it, which was a tremendous honor and rather intimidating, to tell you the truth, I said, the first thing is I want to keep the title, but we change. We add an S from the Zionist idea to the Zionist ideas. And that's a way of opening the conversation from left to right, religious to non-religious. It's also a way of, if you think about the S, it's not, we push from an exclamation point to a question mark. We open up the conversation. And indeed, you know, I, I would say my, my greatest strengths are I have a good memory and a, and, a, and a good rear end. I work hard and I remember things. And uh, I went back to my summer camp, Camp Tel Yehuda in Young Judea in Barryville, New York. And we had an old charismatic educator by the na name of Mel Reesfield. And how would he teach Zionism to 15-year-olds? He'd say, we need a black beard. He didn't have his R's. He was a New Yorker. We have a white beard. I need a hoe. I need a wheel. What did that mean? Exactly what you just read. The black beard, Theodor Herzl, political Zionism. The white beard is Rav Cook, religious Zionism. We'd make a fist for Jabotinsky, revisionist Zionism. A hoe is socialist Zionism. A.D. Gordon, a wheel is Acharaam, cultural Zionism. I'll explain each one. And I added a sixth school of thought, which is diaspora Zionism, American Zionism. Because the first five were about creating an internal revolution for the European Jew, for the Mizrahi Jew who comes to Israel. We've come to Israel to, to, to rebuild and be rebuilt. And American Zionism is saying, how do we help them? And now we're learning, there's a big shift in American Zionism. It's not just how do we help them, but they also help us. Mm. And that's mutuality. Now, what happened in the 70 years of since Israel's birth that you think has influenced the most this idea that you bring up of Zionism going from one idea to several ideas? Because they were always sort of several ideas. But what has changed the most in these 70 years that has influenced your book? It's a great question. Look, we first of all, for all the differences and the passionate arguments that went on in the 19. 10s, 1920s, 1930s, make many of our conversations look very polite. But at the time, the need for a state overrode all. And especially once we hit the 1930s and 1940s and Hitler and the Holocaust and the 1950s and the expulsion of 850,000 Jews from Arab lands and from, and from North Africa, there's a need. The house is on fire. When the house is on fire, you focus on one key idea. We didn't have the luxury Right, we, of looking at different versions of Zionism. Right, we so I, needed... I had my different thoughts, but fundamentally, we did it. And then, so some people say, well, so Zionism is over. So nah, now the work is beginning. We don't say there's no more Americanism because we have America. And just as we have to always build, and one of the great things about being part of these two amazing democracies, the United States and Israel, is we're aspirational. We're never satisfied. We're always saying, not yet. There's more to build. And so now, if in 1948, the passion was about establishing a state, 
Now, I'm not into defending the state. I'm into perfecting the state. And that's why we need different schools of Zionist thought to bring in our different passions, bring in our different identities, bring in our different agendas, and make Israel as great as it can be. So really what we're talking about here is Zionism as a complex, multi-dimensional work in progress. Absolutely. And a work that's always going to be reaching for the next goal, but understands that we are a diverse people. You know, I had the pleasure of being at the Israel Prize Ceremonies for Yom Atzmut, for Israel Independence Day in Jerusalem. Naftali Bennett, very much from the right, very much a religious Jew, religious Zionist, said, I'm a partisan, but if I could press a button and make everybody agree with me, I wouldn't press that button. Because he's also a startup guy. He's a high-techist, and he says, I know that we learn through our argument. And I don't want everybody to agree with me, but, and this goes back to the Natalie Portman thing, we also have certain boundaries. We need our red lines. We also need our blue and white lines. The blue and white lines are the six schools of Zionists thought that unite us. The red lines are, I don't go to BDS. I don't reject the right of Israel to exist. I don't, re- I don't join the anti-Semites and the anti-Zionists. I don't join the mob against Israel. I make Israel better from within. You know what I find fascinating, Gil, is you're really going against the force of gravity here <laughs> because the way, um, the way the media works today is we're encouraged to put everything in a binary box. So it's good and bad and black and white and like and don't like. So Zionism is fit right in. So I like Zionism or I don't like Zionism. And I'm a Zionist and I'm not a Zionist. And it's good and it's bad. So this whole media energy is not conducive to a complex analysis. Whereas here, we're talking about Zionism as a fascinating, complex work in progress. This is not how the mind works today. We're not encouraged. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Natalie Portman does not see Zionism as a complex, multidimensional work in progress. She sees it as being represented by a a, a right-wing government that she doesn't like, and she doesn't agree with it, and that puts you right in a box. And you're saying, let's just enlarge this box, and instead of elevating judgmentalism, let's elevate sort of analysis and questioning and questioning. Absolutely. And so one of the the sad things is that American Jews can see nuance when they look at America. How come they forget to see nuance when they look at Israel and they look at Zionism? And I've been told, people within the Jewish community say, stay away from the Z word, it doesn't poll well. Now, of course, in America, there's no greater crime than not polling well. What movement ever based its fundamental vision on whether it polls well. Do you think Martin Luther King polled well in the 1950s? Do you think the American Revolution itself polled well in the 1770s if we had Gallup back then? Of course not. So what we have to say is, what's the right answer and where's the truth? And we open up the conversation and we invite people in by saying, yes, it's complex. And yes, left to right, religious, non-religious, you can find your place in the Zionist conversation. Amos Oz, the great writer, very much from the left, very critical of Israeli government for the last 50 years says, I envy the people for whom the promise is so easy, who call it the promised land. He said, my Zionism is hard and complicated. Why do we need to always agree about everything? Ed Koch, the great mayor of New York, said, if you agree with me on seven of 12 things, please vote for me. If you agree with me on 12 of 12 things, please see a psychiatrist. We all need a psychiatrist. Let's accept complexity and let's learn how to disagree a little bit civilly, intelligently, substantively. I think what's happened... In, in America is there's been this larger-than-life issue called the, the occupation and the conflict with the Palestinians that seems to dominate all the analysis and conversations about Israel, and people can't move 
past that or they can't incorporate it in their thinking about Israel because it's they just judge it and disqualify the country in the first three seconds. How do you counter that? Look, it was Yasser Arafat's ultimate conceit. His great conceit was, I want every conversation about Israel to be about me. Shame on him for pushing that. Shame on us for accepting it. When we turn everything about Israel into the Palestinians and into the occupation, first of all, we're missing the many opportunities the Palestinians have had to help solve the problem. And we're actually treating the Palestinians in a very condescending, I would even say bigoted way, because we're not giving them respect. We're not giving them agency. We're not saying take some responsibility for this. It's all on us. And that's a very dare I say it, colonialist, racist uh, perspective. And so I say, look, it's complicated. I'm not afraid of complication. What I'm afraid of is people who can see complication in everything except for the Israel file. So I go on the university campus. My fellow professors could make anything complicated. The act of going to Starbucks could be something where you write a history of coffee and you talk about the economics of how expensive Starbucks is. You can talk about the anthropology of the coffee drinking experience. Everything is complicated. When it comes to Israel, then, they go into simplistic sloganeering. (laughs) That doesn't pass the anti-Semitic smell test. That doesn't smell right. That doesn't feel right. When Israel, this multidimensional, multicultural, complex organism, country, with all its weaknesses, but all its strengths, is reduced to one line, the occupation, one issue, the Palestinians, that doesn't pass the smell test. And I say, why? What's wrong with us and what's wrong with them? And I think you see it also in a lot of the protesters here in America and some of the groups uh, where they will lead with a slogan, for example, end the occupation. And it's a little reductionism because it just reduces the conflict to just one idea as if Israel had the power to just do that. And that kind of stuff really influences the conversations uh, in the Jewish world, and it's reduced it. So we're like, we're, we're put in categories. Are you for, are you against, are you right, are you left? And the conversation itself has become really narrow, and you're trying to broaden that, are you not? Absolutely. Look, you know, my own background, uh, I was not very involved politically in the 1990s, and I was teaching at Meikle University, and when I saw, as soon as Yasser Arafat decided... I'm not negotiating. I'm not even countering Ehud Barak's very generous offer at Camp David in 2000. We need to learn our history. And I'm not only going to do that, but I'm going to turn to the most evil form of terrorism, attacking buses, attacking families, sitting and having coffee, wiping out three, four generations at once. And all of a sudden, it was our fault. Then I said, hmm, only one country in history ever returned territory having won it in defensive war. Israel in 1977, 78, 79 with Egypt, and then again Israel as the start of the Oslo peace process. And yet we're always wrong. And so what I'm trying to do is, yeah, open the conversation. I want to take back the night. I learned from my feminist friends. I'm not going to let the oppressor define us. And the great liberal activist Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, I'm not focusing on the accused. I'm focusing on the accuser. Why is there such an obsession about Israel? Why is there only one democratic country that's called out in this way? Why is there only one democratic country that we say, huh, if I don't like this policy or that prime minister, I reject the whole package? And it's Israel? That doesn't make sense. So yes, let's have a conversation about Zionism. Let's have a conversation about Zionisms. Let's open up the conversation. Let's be sophisticated and complex. And let's also not be afraid to celebrate as well as to criticize. And speaking of criticism, Are there healthy boundaries within criticism? I read something on Facebook this morning by a friend of mine who sort of distinguished between 
you know, constructive criticism and joining a lynch mob. <laughs> you know, are there, are there such a thing? Because obviously it's something that's brought up constantly. It's one of the secrets to Jewish success is this idea that we're able to look inside and have self-criticism. How do you draw the boundaries? Look, we, we, come, from a, uh, we come from a tradition of pil-pul, the Talmudic notion, and again, the, the, the genius of Startup Nation is back and forth, what Shimon Peres called the Jewish dissatisfaction gene, this constant push for creativity through argument, through dispute. I'm not afraid of argument, I'm not afraid of dispute. But I think, like Abraham's tent, Abraham was open from the right and open from the left, open from the center and open from the back. But he also was a tent. He had clear lines. And so what we have to do is understand, yes, constructive criticism, also nuanced criticism. As I said earlier, I hold my American Jewish friends up to the same standards in, on the Israel file that I do on the American file. If you can see nuance in one, you should be able to see nuance in the other. And so in some ways, it's not so complicated. It's easy to say, let's accept what Yossi Klein Alevi, our good friend and great teacher, says is the, the, there's a 48 file and the 67 file. The 48 file is, does Israel have the right to exist? If you're opening up that file, if you're, ch if you're challenging everything about Israel, if you're boycotting Israel, if you're saying it's the 48 file, you're not going to make peace. And by the way, the further left you are, the more you should be against that because Israel is never going to compromise if Israelis feel like their very existence is at stake. But if you close that file and say, look, Israel's a country, Israel exists. What are you going to do? Eight million people, two million non-Jews living there democratically, happily, 11th on the happiness world index. But let's open up the 67 file. Let's negotiate borders. Then we'll have progress. But as long as the Palestinians, and I'm sorry to say the far left, are opening the 48 file again and again and again, making it a fight over existence, we're stuck. And it's their fault, not ours. Okay. So let's get into the six ideas of Zionism that you have in your book, because I think it's connected to the conversation of making it more nuanced. So the first one you have is political. Give me an example of political Zionism. So political Zionism, the black beard, is Theodor Herzl. The fundamental idea that we are a people, that as a people we have ties to a particular homeland, which doesn't negate other ties of other peoples to that homeland, and we want to establish a state. Today, what's that? So we established it in 48. The conversation that we see about political Zionism today goes in a number of directions. First of all, Michael Oren has a beautiful piece in which he says, I'm not a Herzlian Zionist who said, if you will, it is no dream. He said, I'm a Schwartzian Zionism. He goes to Delmore Schwartz, the poet who says, in dreams begin responsibility. He says, my challenge as a political Zionist is understanding that rather than just sitting by on the sidelines, now I'm joining Jewish history. I'm making decisions. I have tough dilemmas. What do I do? I have ugly neighbors. I have neighbors who want to destroy me. Taking Jewish ethical ideals and applying them in real time is political Zionism. And the second thought is understanding that we can be a Jewish and democratic state. First of all, because what is Jewish? Jewish isn't just a religion. It's also this mix. What one of my teachers said is an Oreo cookie. So like an Oreo cookie is a cookie part and a cream part, and that's what an Oreo cookie is. So Judaism is a mix of religion and nation. And if we understand that, then we start a conversation of what does it mean to have a democratic Jewish state? What does it mean to express our majority culture in the public square? And that's legitimate. We say Merry Christmas here in America because it's legitimate to acknowledge that the majority here is still a Christian country. And we say Happy Hanukkah in Israel because it's a Jewish state and it's a celebrating the Jewish culture, not just the Jewish religion. Uh, staying on this first political one for a minute, uh, one of the controversial things that came out of uh, Natalie Portman's second statement was when she said that Israel was created as a refuge, you know, post-Holocaust, right? And then which seems to negate 
the 3,000-year connection uh, to the land. And is that part of political Zionism, this idea of this, uh, you know, eternal connection? Political Zionism reminds us of how much bigger the idea is. And frankly, in America today, we're the only time in the 2016 campaign I saw the word nationalism, there was always a word in front of it, white, xenophobia, negative. We have to learn from Theodor Herzl. We have to learn from Michael Oren. We have to learn from liberal... uh, We have to learn from political Zionism to take back the night for liberal nationalism too. Liberal nationalism created America, created Israel, has created some of the most amazing things. Nationalism is a neutral tool. It can sometimes lead to xenophobia and horrible things, but also, how else do we work together as a collective? So the core idea of political Zionism is not just, as you point out, our eternal connection as a people to the land, but also that we're not just an I, we're an us. The usness of, of us, the usness of any valid nation, of any tribe, is what political Zionism is all about. And it seems that it's the one that gets the most recognition in the media, yep. and it also the one where we see so much of the, forgive, I don't have a better word than balagan, <laughs> the craziness we see in the Knesset, and presidents going to jail, and prime ministers going to jail, and just the incredible... Um, corruption, backstabbing. It, it seems to me sometimes that the worst part of Israel is the political scene, and they represent the greatest part of the image of Israel. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how you see the state of political Zionism today. Well, again, you know, we know in America not to define America just by its president and just by what goes on in Washington. There's a much bigger country out there. And you're right, in many ways we define uh, Israel by the craziness and the latest article we've read in the LA Times, the New York Times about what Bibi's doing, what Ruby Rivlin's doing or not doing. And that's a part of it. But, you know, think about, think about this miracle. Of the millions of Jews who live in Israel, if you look at their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, most of them grew up in non-democratic countries, non-democratic cultures. You put them in the Middle East where there's never been a democracy before. You put them in the Middle East where they're surrounded by enemies, by dictatorial enemies. The fact that we have a democracy, that it's so functional, the fact that this democracy in 2018 is, by the way, far more generous, far more progressive, far more liberal, far more righteous, far more open, far more democratic, lowercase d, than it was in the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s, and has continued to grow, is a human miracle. And as Chaim Weizmann, the first president of the state of Israel, said, I've learned in my life to believe in miracles, but miracles are human-made. Beautiful. Uh, the second one you have in your book is revisionist. Give us a little background on revisionist Zionism and how it's operative today in Israel. So revisionist Zionism is often caricatured as just the fist. And indeed it was Zev Jabotinsky, a more often ardent form of, nationals, of nationalism, of looking at because Jabotinsky understood something that many Zionists in the 20s and 30s didn't understand. Europe was already on fire. That the, there was no space in Europe, in modern, enlightened Europe for the Jew. The diaspora was collapsing. This man dies in 1940 and he's already predicting a Holocaust. And so he pushes a, a, a program where it says the most important thing is establish a state. But that's not all he does. He also talks about liberalism and individualism and nationalism. And he wants to bring back pride. He says, we are the great, 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 great grandchildren of princes and princesses. And to me, it's no surprise, it's no coincidence that his great heir, his great follower, Menachem Begin, comes in in 1977 and is part of the revolution that, first of all, brings Mizrahim, brings Svartim into the conversation, broadens it, because that was Jabotinsky I too, love of the people, love of all the people, regardless of where they come from. 
not stripping their identity when they come over on the boat in order to fit some kind of socialist Ben-Gurion ideal, but to establish them and, and respect them. A love of tradition. He's the first prime minister elected, goes to the Kotel, goes to the Western Wall. Man who walks around with a bare head uh, day to day, but has a love of tradition. And those are also revisionist ideas. And part of the revisionist movement is also modernizing capitalism, high tech. And we've seen since 1977, Israel go from a socialist country to a capitalist country, a country that's creating all these miracles in pharma that we totally take for granted, but is also part of the Zionist story. The startup nation is also the Zionist nation. What I find fascinating about Jabotinsky uh, was how he married this obsession with security with just pure liberalism. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, that can be seen as contradictory. I remember during the Second Intifada, and we were in a panic mode here in LA, because here's an open society. And when you're open society, you are a lot more vulnerable to having somebody who's free to walk around the streets of Tel Aviv blow himself up. So in a way, we, we started to see the openness of Israel as a potential point of vulnerability. And here's Jabotinsky, the man whose philosophy was the iron wall, who understood the primordial importance of security, uh, promoting a liberal uh, view of society. Indeed. Well, again, memo to Natalie Portman, you can have two contradictory thoughts in your head, and that's the mark of an intellectual. But part more than that, he understood, first of all, his Iron Wall essay and his, his focus on security comes from tremendous respect for Arabs. He says, I know how ardent a nationalist I am. They will never and, accept it. And I assume the fact that they're, I assume that they are as passionate as I am, and I respect that. So I need to be strong, not to oppress them, but to meet them as equals and to, and to respect them as equals. And, but part of that is also, I'm gonna build a society, I'm gonna build a state, which is based on my core ideals, and I'm not gonna let the security threat ruin who I am. I'm gonna make sure that the security threat is met, but also I keep my core ideals, I keep my conscience. And people like Zev Jabotinsky, people like Menachem Begin, and today, the president of the state of Israel, Ruby Rivlin, who gives an amazing speech about the four tribes of Israel. He says, a Zionist has to understand that today, there are religious Zionists, there are secular Zionists, those are the first two tribes. The third tribe is Haredim, ultra-Orthodox. They're a part of our conversation. And the fourth tribe, two million non-Jews, mostly Arabs. They're a part of our society, too. And Ruby Rivlin, right-winger, in favor of the settlements, understands, as Jabotinsky did, that I can be a Democrat, lowercase d. I can be a liberal, lowercase l. And I can also reach out to others while also defending myself and saying, look, these are my, this is my ancestral homeland. I'm going to defend it. I'm going to build it. It feels like that's the soul of Zionism right there. In many ways. Um, I got a, a piece this morning by my friend Tova Hartman um, bemoaning the fact that there are groups in Israel that don't celebrate Yom Atzmaut or Yom Azikaron. And she spoke about the Haredi segment mm -hmm. and how uh, dismayed she was that even at a moment when you would think that all of Israel could sort of rally around this, if there's one thing that could unite all Israelis is the fact that 26,000 soldiers have fallen to protect the state. And then the next day, which is the celebration of Israel, does that ever enter your mind when, you, when you're there in Israel and you see that there's a group of Jewish brothers, the Haredi, that do not do anything different for Yom HaZikaron or Yom HaTzmaut? You know, last year, my son, who serves in the Army, was asked to give a speech to the Montreal March of the Living Group. And um, 
we did it in a hotel downstairs, and he gave, of course, a beautiful speech. It was very moving. And then on the way out, I'm in a hotel, and in hotel lobbies, you often see Haredim on dates. And I see these people on dates on Erev Yom Hazikaron, the holiest day in the Israeli calendar, along with Yom Kippur. And at that moment, I was deeply offended. But I want to say two other things. One is that the overwhelming feeling you get in Israel on Yom HaZikaron, on Yom Atzmaut, on Memorial Day, on Independence Day, is unity. Of course, there are always going to be people, and, and you know, I, I focus on who's inside the tent more than who's outside the tent. And secondly, you know, I, I like to show in a PowerPoint I, I give a slide of 600,000 Haredim protesting against uh, enlisting in the draft. And I say, look how undemocratic, and everybody goes, yes, in Israel and America, yes, look how undemocratic. I say, oh, wait a minute. These are people protesting peacefully, exercising their democratic right. They have the democratic right to be different. If you believe in diversity, I have to disagree with them. I will fight them. I will argue with them. But I also respect them, and I accept them as citizens. Okay. I was there last week and uh, for Yom Ma'ut and Yom HaZikaron, and I was just blown away by the sense of innocence in the celebration. of, uh, And I really did feel that, that unity yep. that you're talking about. Let's go right to labor Zionism. Uh, speak to us a little bit about labor Zionism and how it's evolved over so we the ha- years. So we have our Blackbeard political Zionism, Herzl. We have our fist, Jabotinsky revisionist Zionism. And now we have the Ho, labor Zionism, socialist Zionism. And part of it, what we really have to understand, especially for today, is what's the idea... These people are so passionate about their Zionism, so passionate about Jewish peoplehood, so passionate about creating a Jewish state that they want to make a mix of their core values. And their core values included at the time socialism. And because they're coming from Russia, mostly these socialist Zionists, and they create an amazing institution like the kibbutz. And from that also comes two other things we have to remember. One, a deep love of land and a love of the people and a, de- and a desire to, to have the land be something where you work the land and the land helps redeem us. And as you said earlier, the story of the Jewish people cannot be told without land and this particular land. But an amazing thing happens. One of the fun things about putting these chapters together is you start seeing different people speaking to one another, different texts, even though the people have been dead for years, talking to one another. And so when you look at labor Zionism, you see two amazing moves. One is, of course, labor Zionism goes from being the Zionism the only Zionism, a Zionism that pushed other Zionisms aside in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. After 1977, when Menachem Begin takes over, now labor Zionism has to share Zionism with revisionist Zionism and other forms of Zionism, thus the S, the second S in Zionism. But secondly, a revolution takes place. In the early 1950s, Golda Meir gets up at a labor party convention, and she has a rival, Shulamir Aloni. And Shulamir Aloni is speaking, and Shulamir Aloni says... I think, and Golda Meir cuts her off and says, in the Labor Party, we don't use the word I, we only use the word we. That's 1950s labor Zionism. By the 70s and 80s and 90s and today, when we get to the new form of labor Zionism, which is progressive Zionism, there's a great line in the book, progressive Zionism is not an oxymoron. It's not a contradiction in terms. We see that you have to go from the us to the I. The way you defend progressive rights, labor Zionism, liberal Zionism today, is through the I, not the us. It's about individual rights, human rights. And so we see a movement, an ideological movement taking place, and that is, to me as a historian, is very important. I don't want to make categories, but I also don't want to be so rigid in my categories that I take the air out of the categories. What I also find fascinating is all these Zionism, they're like walking on the same streets. 
they're you know in the same meetings, they're in the same Knesset halls, and it's the friction between the Zionism that's that is a whole other story. Because I know I have friends of mine from that rooted in the old labor Zionism, and they can't stand Haredim, and they can't stand you know the. The, the religious Zionist, and there's there's almost this kind of animosity between the Zionism where you define yourself not just by who you are, by but by what you're against. Look, we're a disputatious people, so the you're absolutely right. The Zionisms are conflicting, but also within Zionism, look to this day there are some kibbutzim that split over Stalin. Both labor Zionists, both socialist Zionists, but some saw how evil Stalin was, some were a little blind to it, and this is why we shouldn't be afraid of argument. But we have to understand how to have an argument. And that's what we've forgotten. We've forgotten how to be civil. We've forgotten how to learn from one another. You know, as a university professor, I wish, I wish that we had a culture where people would come up to me and say, you know, Troy, you just defended Israel. I hate Israel. Let's have coffee. Instead, when I started defending Israel, I was treated like I had some kind of disease or I was involved in some kind of scandal. They just didn't talk to me. And that, that silence, that contemptuous silence, is both... Uh, anti-democratic in the true sense of the word, but it's really actually a form of narcissism. It's a love of yourself. I'm so perfect. I understand the world so completely that I can't even learn from you. And that's the death of academia. It's the death of the university culture. And it also could be the death of the Jewish people if we ever get to that place. And I'm thankful that in Israel we still have a robust conversation and robust arguments while also being able to unite as you felt, you felt it on Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaZimur. Well, you know, I'm, we're seeing it here in America the past couple of years in the Trump era. Uh, we've lost the idea of disagreement. So now it's not just that I disagree with you. It's that I reject you. And you're evil, right? And that's dangerous. And so we see in the Jewish community, people hate Donald Trump so much that it can, if I dare use that verb, trump their love of Jerusalem. Why can't you say, look, if Barack Obama had recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital, there'd be... Church bells peeling from left to right. We'd actually put church bells on top of our synagogues so the church bells could peel from our synagogues. We'd say, oh, thank God the Messiah has arrived because finally, finally, Israel joins the other 192 countries in the United Nations and is able to pick its own capital. So why can't we say, you know what? On this one, I agree with you, Mr. Trump. And that actually gives me credibility to say on the other 12, 15, 30 things, I disagree with you. But instead, ah, Donald Trump touched it and it became toxic. That reverse Midas touch is a form of narcissism. Everything he does is so evil. Why can't we say, huh, he might have been right on this one? Well, on the fourth Zionism, religious Zionism, that's also become a electric, sort of loaded word. Has it, has it not? Absolutely. Religious Zionism. Talk to us about that. So religious Zionism is our white beard, Rav Cook, mm -hmm. And we have to learn two very important things from Rav Cook and then see a very important lesson for today. So the first lesson from Rav Cook, who was this very rigorous scholar, is he hears all these stories of the Chalutzim, all these stories of the pioneers, and he hears how they're secular. But he understands that they are redeeming the land, and the land is holy. And so to him, they are instruments of God. They are instruments of the Jewish people. And he links the Oreo cookie, the peoplehood part, and the religion part. And he goes up in 1913 to a settlement, back when settlements was a, not such a complicated word. And he sees these young Eastern European Jews who are trying to reclaim the land. And some of them are dressed as Bedouin. And Rav Cook is dressed in his beautiful flowing robes. And he sees these Bedouin, these Jewish Bedouin dressed in their flowing robes. He says, let's switch robes. And he puts on their dirty 
robes, because they've been working the land, and they put on his beautiful rabbinic caftan, and they dance into the night. And so the first thing we have to learn from religious Zionism is we are one, we are united. Second, connected to that, Rabbi David Hartman said, you know, the rebellion of the secular Zionist was like the rebellion of the teenager. Mom, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, but never quite leaves, the, no goes out the door, never leaves the room, because we went back to our land, we went back to our homeland, we went back to our language, we went back to Judaism in its own way. And so today I love it. I speak to my Israeli friends. They go, eh, I am the secular. I go, great. There's a new restaurant that just opened up in Tel Aviv at 7 o'clock on Friday night. Could we go to eat there? I can't go then. I'll miss, what do they call it? Shabbat dinner. And then on Pesach, they show up to the Seder. And God forbid there's a tragedy. They sit shiva all seven days, no discount. Uh, they, they, they keep, they, 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 many of them keep kosher. 60% of Israelis will keep kosher, some form of kashrut. They, 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 they uh, understand what it is to be live a Jewish life. I go, you're the worst secular people in the world. You don't know how to be secular. And that's also religious Zionism, that mix. So those are the two ideas of unity. Today, when we look at religious Zionism, there's a third dimension. I'm critical of religious Zionists who only worship the land. They've forgotten Rav Cook. Rav Cook understands that the land is one piece of Judaism. And if religious Zionism is only about land and only about the settlements, they are distorting religious Zionism. Within the religious community, there has to be two different kinds of conversations. One, how do we take halakha? How do we take Jewish law? And also, bring it alive, bring it out of the Galut, bring it out of the exile, as was being discussed, by the way, in, in, in Jerba, in Morocco, when they, were, when they were starting to look at Zionism, because there's a whole Svardi Mizrahi story of religious Zionism, too. And how do we bring it alive now that we're going to be in the land? And the other piece... I want my religious Zionists and my labor Zionists talking together because they're going to understand that Torah talks about social justice and the labor movement talks about social justice. And by the way, the revisionist movement does too. Let's have a conversation about fulfilling Zionism in that way, fulfilling Torah ideals and the most modern liberal ideals together. Well, two groups that are not talking to each other are the religious Zionists and the Haredim because the Haredim feel really especially threatened by the mm -hmm. religious Zionists because they've shown a way of marrying Torah with the secular ideals of defending the land and getting an education and working. And, and it's a threat to them. And what we're seeing, by the way, you know, everybody counts how many Haredim are born, how many ultra-Orthodox are born. We don't see how many ultra-Orthodox leave and drift out and join either the modern world fully or join the religious world. The whole notion of datlashim, which is light, you know, lightened uh, religious people, is uh, not enlightened, but lightened, you know, that they, they've lightened the, the load, is an important thing. And, and I think we have to have more of a conversation about that. And we have to learn the complexity of both movements. And frankly, look at the Haredim and say, wait a minute, I read my Bible. Gideon, Deborah the judge and the prophet, she understands that when you have to fight, you have to defend yourself, you fight. What is this notion, I'm not going to fight, I'm not going to earn money, I'm going to live just like a Luft mentioned in the clouds? It doesn't work. One of the things that does concern me is the schism within religious Zionism today, where mm -hmm. there's a group that's really moving more to the right. And I'm sure you've seen that as well. And yep. that, that concerns me. And in the book, The Zionist Ideas, you see that. You see different voices, and, and some of them are even from the right, I have, I have from right and left within the religious movement, and some of them are so pained. How can you be like that? And we have to learn how to rebuild and come back together and remind us of the fundamentals. But again, on Yom Atzimut, you feel whatever the differences are, we're united. Which segues perfectly to cultural Zionism. So cultural Zionism is the wheel. And what's the wheel? That the Jewish people are a wheel, that we have a center. The center is Israel. And then we go out through the spokes of the wheel to the United States, to Canada, to the United Kingdom, to Morocco, to uh, Russia, to all the different communities. 
Yerushalayim shel Zahav. Everyone I know in the Jewish world knows that song. It came from Jerusalem, and it became part of our cultural DNA. So cultural Zionism, the first idea is that we're going to have a cultural resurgence through that revolution in building a Jewish nation and building a Jewish homeland and building a Jewish culture. And the second biggest miracle, Ivrit, Hebrew. Think about what Eliezer ben Yehuda did. He said, I'm going to bring this language, I'm going to break it alive, and I'm going to learn from my Arab friends and take the word for Garab, Sak, Garbayim today, from the Arabs. I'm going to have to have Glida, ice cream, from the Talmudic work for, for cold, freezing. I'm going to get more creative. And, you know, I'm a Queen's Jew at the end of the day, so I like my pigs in blankets. What am I going to call it? We're going to call it Moshe Beteva, Moses in the Basket. And the most difficult phrase for my daughter when we got to Israel and she wanted cotton candy and they call it Se'arot Safta, grandma's hair. But think about it, the cultural creativity and how we, even if we don't all speak Hebrew and we should all learn Hebrew better, are at least part of that resurgence. It's an amazing thing. And we should be celebrating that. Natalie Portman should be celebrating that. You know, and when I hear you speak, I see two sides of the same coin. Because on the one hand, there's this idealized view of cultural integration where you have Jews from 100 different countries coming together in one place. And we're all experiencing the fascinating blend of all these different cultures. At the other, on the other hand, the other side of the coin is too often cultural differences are used as um, vehicles of discrimination vehicles of animosity. My ancestors who moved to Israel were from Morocco were discriminated against. The Ethiopians, you know, they were discriminated against. The Russians were discriminated against. And talk, talk about that. So we have to acknowledge that there was discrimination and that leaders like Natan Sharansky basically understood that we have to kind of create a new version, not just creating one version of the new Jew, but a mosaic, a sort of multicultural Judaism, where on the one hand, we have many things that unite us and other things that divide us. And just last week, Naftali Bennett, very much an Ashkenazi, very much from the religious community, started off his speech at the Israel Prizes by saying, when I was a kid, I turned to my father, we were living in Haifa, and I said, Abba, Dad, are we Ashkenazi or Sephardi? He said, we're Jewish. And I always like to say, in Israel, I love intermarriage. The more intermarriage I'm seeing between Ashkenazim and Sephardim is doing two things. One is it's creating that cultural stew, but more than that, it's also teaching many Ashkenazim who think they're only secular how to appreciate tradition. Because the, many of the Sephardim, many of the Mizrahim still have that strong sense of tradition. And it's a change. We're learning to learn from one another, not just have one model and say, ah, oh, if you don't meet that model, you're primitive. If you don't meet that model, we're going to strip you of your cultural identity. No. And, and uh, we see someone like Erez Biton, the Israeli prize winner, uh, who's a poet whose family comes from Morocco, who talks about uh, this, this cultural integration, who talks about the sounds and the language that comes from that rich culture of thousands of years where Israelis, where Jews and Arabs were, were living together and now injecting it into Israeli culture. And he just led, by the way, a very important initiative, how to teach about Mizrahi culture, Sephardic culture, in the Jewish, in the Israeli curriculum, in the, in the Jewish day schools. I think one of the great ironies of Israel is if you take the darkest side of the Israel story, which is the fact that Israel is surrounded by so many hostile countries that would like to destroy Israel, which is really the darkest side for me of, of the Zionist project, and it's connected to the fact that Israel had to create this amazing army. And in, it's in this army that so much of the cultural integration happened. And in that army, it doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It's green. It's all green and blue and white. They bleed blue and white, and they dress in green. 
And they understand it has been an amazing uh, experience watching how the army makes us a, a, a country. And frankly, when I look at the American Jewish community, I think if we had more of an ethos of national service, uh, I, f I think it would be helpful for all of the United States if the United States had an ethos of national service. But if not, let's start having an American Jewish notion of before I go to that university, I'll get in and I'll take a gap year and I'll give back. And it would be so important for our community and it would be also so important for our souls. We'd learn that by giving, we get so much more. It's almost uh, tongue-in-cheek if uh, security Zionism is the one that's pulling them all together. And the last one that you have in your book, diaspora Zionism. Now, that's an interesting term that I hadn't heard before because in the diaspora today, Zionism has become a dirty word. So it's two sides of it. One is, in Israel for a long time, diaspora was this dirty word, and you couldn't have a diaspora Zionist, because they would say, if you don't live here, you don't be the Zionist, right? And in the diaspora, people are saying, now, I'm post-Zionist, or it doesn't poll well, I'm giving up the Z word. And so I'm trying to be subversive. So I'm saying, yes, we have political Zionism, when you have religious Zionism, we have revisionist Zionism. And all those were basically singing the song, Artsa Alinu, we made Aliyah. And traditionally, American Zionism, diaspora Zionism was, okay, we'll write the checks for you poor schnooks over there starving in Palestine because we still have a sense of brotherhood and sisterhood. But there's been an important change. Diaspora Zionism has become what I now call identity Zionism. Diaspora Zionism, American Zionism, is not just saying how do we help them, but how do they help us. Birthright is all about looking at Israel as an identity builder, looking at Israel as a republic of something, looking at Israel as something that can help us build a healthier identity right here in Los Angeles, right here in the United States or in the UK or in Canada. And that's the essential move. And that, look, ultimately, what was Zionism? Zionism was the, the self-help project of the Jewish people. Zionism, David Ben-Gurion said, I've picked on him a little bit, so I have to build him up a little bit. Um, David Ben-Gurion said, you know, most revolutions were hard enough. You have to get rid of the the, the, the regime. So the American Revolution, get rid of the British. The Russian Revolution, get rid of the Tsar. The French Revolution, get rid of the king. Our revolution, we had to get rid of the British, but we also had to get rid of the inner Jew, the broken down Jew, the pathetic Jew, the embarrassed Jew. And we have done that. One of the miracles of Israel is the miracle of the American Jewish community. We, as an American Jewish community, are stronger, prouder, freer, feel more comfortable with our own bodies, feel more comfortable exercising political power because of Israel. And that too is part of the exchange. And now we're learning that Israel can be truly a light with all our criticisms, with all our frustrations, with all our disagreements with the government. That 24-7 Judaism, that sense of history, that sense of community, that sense of tradition you get there is something that cannot be replicated, cannot be Xeroxed, cannot be imported. And we go there to taste of it and say, how do we learn from it and make ourselves not just better Jews, not just more supportive of Israel, but better human beings. That's ultimately what this is all about. This Zionist conversation is not just how do I help Israel and not just how does Israel help me, but how do we find meaning in life? And that's our challenge. And I'm not arrogant enough to say that Zionism is the only way. I'm not arrogant enough to say that we've got the perfect solution. But we've been at this for 3,500 years and we're a part of this amazing tradition. I'm not giving it up. I don't want my kids to give it up. I know you're not giving it up. I know your kids are not giving it up. And together, we'll learn Natan Sharansky's key idea, idea, which is that by learning our identity, by rooting our identity, that's how we get values. He said that when he was stripped of his identity, he was stripped of his values. In 1967, when he discovers as a Russian Jew that he is a Jew, then he also becomes a human rights activist. And that's the balance that is at the heart of Zionism. Well, before I let you go, 
because one of those values, Jewish values, is conversation. And I'd like you to speak about how you see this book uh, playing a role in the American Jewish conversation, because this is not just a book. It's like it's a, it's a volume where oh, I could you. see uh, groups of people getting together every week and taking one essay at a time, because it's, it's just it's not a, a, a one-idea book. Well, thank you for that. So first of all, again, the name of the book is The Zionist Ideas. And my vision for pushing this book is having Zionist salons. Because if you think about it, Zionism was invented in the salon. The American Jewish community was invented on the boat, right? And from 1880 to 1920, two million Jews are coming over on the boat. It was obviously one boat. And Israel, the Palestine story, the Zionist story was very marginal. But a group of crazy intellectuals, mostly in Eastern Europe, but also in Morocco, in Jerba, in Tunis, in, uh, in North Africa are arguing about Israel and dreaming about what the, state of, the land of Israel would become the state of Israel. And so I want to replicate that. I want us to have Zionist salons. And we have a website, www.zionistideas.com. And on that, you can find one-offs. You can find how to have a conversation, how to host people around your table, around your boardroom, and talk about Israel. And you can also find many courses, six courses, uh, six meetings, 12 meetings, 18 meetings, using the different schools of Zionism, using the different periods, and yeah, essay by essay, argue about it, learn about it, embrace it, be passionate, and let's use Zionism not just, as I said earlier, to find meaning in our souls, not just to help the Jewish people, but also help the American people heal, because if we take back the night, we'll also be taking back the conversation about liberal nationalism, understanding that as an individual, I can only do so much. Ultimately, I need my community. I need others to work together to make the world a better place. That is truly tikkun olam, and that is truly what Zionism is all about. Well, on that note, Gil, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, and thank you for all you're doing as a thought leader, as, as, as a leader in this community in Los Angeles. But I want you to know that we in Israel, we in New York, we in Canada, I've played taxes in all those places so I can say we there, there, are reading the Jewish Journal, are learning from you, are seeing the, the, the new Jewish Journal, and are so excited every week when we see yet more thought pieces, yet more inspiration coming from you. So call a couple of days. Well, I wasn't expecting that, but so, thank you, Gil. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Maybe I'll get invited back now. <laughs> <laughs>